Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 60 of Smart Enough to Know Better, our podcast of science, comedy and ignorance. Oh, you are you crazy. I am super keen. And you know why I'm super keen? No time for us, Robert. Can we have an interview? And I'd like to ease into that. No, I want, I, want to, I want to blurt out who the interview is. I'm going to, I can just go, blah, 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 and it'll be done. Oh, good idea. Yep. Because that's good sizzle. Okay. It's Michelle Bannister. Ah, uh, yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Michelle. Michelle. Wow, it's really loud. Oh, sorry. From your end. Sorry. Oh, yeah. Dial really? back your excitement, for uh, God's sake. I'll stay back here. It's Michelle Bannister. Michelle Bannister is probably the most popular guest we've had on here. The, the most feedback we've had, yes. Yeah. Uh, an maybe ast- an astronomer and who put up with our rubbish. Hooray. Maybe Matt. Um, oh, uh, he was the, dreamy. Yeah, the, the fingerprint guy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he won't come back. He will. We just have to organise him. Oh, right, I see. He's uh... But anyway, enough about Matt. Michelle's on. We can just go straight to that interview. No, I'm just going to dive back in. Because you know what? I've got something of vague interest. Vague? Vague interest. We love vague Before interest. we get back to possibly the most popular interviewee we've ever sure. had, I'd like to discuss something of vague interest. <laughs> something that's not too much of a yawner. Sure, sure. Good, good. I learned a little bit of something about skin cancer recently. Mm. Something that never even occurred to me. If you got tattooed, mm. then it would be on your arm, on your skin. Mm. And some people might think, oh, wow, you could just cover up your skin with tattoos mm. and then you're not going to get skin cancer because the tattoos would protect you from the sun. Right. Like you were constantly in shade. Oh, no, what? No, they wouldn't think that at all. Like surely. the pigment. Like if you were painted, yes. then you'd constantly be in shade. Your skin would be in the dark. But the, but the ink is inside your skin. Yes. Ah. The ink is actually underneath the bit that gets skin cancer. Oh, right. So your skin cancer happens above the tattoo. Now, the problem there is that when you're looking for skin cancers, you're looking for coloured spots and Mm. weird spots on the skin. Having a tattoo makes it so hard to find. So if you get tattoos, you're actually at more risk of the doctor not being able to spot or you not being able to spot Mm. a skin cancer developing. It doesn't increase your chances of getting a skin cancer. It just decreases your chances of spotting a skin cancer. Yeah. Aha. Until it's, like, quite big. Mm. But the other problem is that if you've got a spot on a particularly nice tattoo, you're like, oh, well, I really like that tattoo. I don't want them to cut that bit out. I'll just pretend it's not there. So people are avoiding going to get skin checks just in case they find out that the weird little blemish is actually something that needs to be cut out and their beautiful mermaid will get turned into, like, Odin, the one-eyed fish god. Or, or she suddenly gains another nipple, like an inverted nipple. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That'd be weird. Or my three-wolf moon tattoo just gets me crater on it. <laughs> just a little tiny crater on the moon. On the crater on the moon. Okay. That's all right. That'd be cool. Or mum would become Mim. <laughs> We are delighted to re-welcome, to, to, re-re- to welcome the return <laughs> of Dr. Michelle Bannister, postdoctoral fellow of the Outer Solar System Origins Survey. Welcome, Dr. Bannister. Good morning. Hooray. She came back. That's very exciting. And she oh, even... it was fun last time. Oh, oh that's a, a rigging endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and, and only one more. So we, we have a system now. We have one, if you come back one more time in the future, no pressure. You get these lovely knives. <laughs> no, you get to be called friend of the show. Oh, there you go. It has to be three. What? No chocolate? Come on, where's uh, the bribe? No. <laughs> okay, and we'll bribe you as well. We can do that. <laughs> So for the, our listeners who may not remember Michelle, uh, Michelle came on uh, a couple of months ago and put us right about trans-Neptunian objects. So we talked about all the really cold and icy things that sort of float past Neptune, Pluto and all those other good things that are out there. And we actually got a lot of good feedback about it, so that was very exciting. Uh, nice. Now, now, Dr. Bannister, I, I love saying Dr. Bannister because it kind of sounds like Dr. I'm, Banner. Does, it does. I feel like I'm talking it's, to the Hulk. It's a... <laughs> well, to be fair, I'm not actually Dr. Bannister until the Australian National University gives oh. me a piece of paper that says right. this and that won't happen until next year so oh you're not, and you're not actually the hulk until you get bathed in gamma radiation that's, that's but it. that doesn't stop me from fantasizing <laughs> See, before we get into the the bulk of the interview i wanted to run something past you because a couple of weeks ago <laughs> greg was very very excited he said it was this is important as man walking on the moon mm-hmm. it was that the voyager spacecraft had left our solar system. 
system. That's right. And, and I stand by that. Because it had, it had exited <laughs> our heliosphere. The, the heliopause. Heliopause. <laughs> it had gone through the heliopause. It had exited the heliosphere. Oh, okay. Right, okay. And yep. I said, I, re- I will wager that our friend of the show... Oh. Michelle Bannister <laughs> jumps would ahead have, would have something to say about the Voyager <laughs> being described as leaving the solar system. Are you are familiar with this news? It was the last conference I was at um, at the start of October, which is the big one that a lot of the American planetary scientists and the uh, North American planetary scientists go to. So they all get together uh, once a year, and it's a pretty big conference, about 700 to 1,000 people, which is reasonably large as astronomy conferences go. Hmm. And they had a talk there by Ed Stone, who was, they call, the principal investigator. So the person in charge of the Voyager spacecraft. And he gave a beautiful invited talk about Voyager's journey through, because he's seen this mission since, what is it, 68 or so, I think it was launched, around that time. This mission is, well, it's well older than me. It's well older than many of the people I work with. It's (laughs) It's even older than me. Goodness me. (laughs) It's amazing amazing to see one of these projects that has been such a generational spacecraft. Mm. This has had generation after generation of scientists come and work on it, and it has got to see the whole thing from an initial idea of, okay, maybe we could do this to governing it through the wilds of trying to get funding for it to, okay, let's cut the metal, let's make the spacecraft, let's launch it. And then this journey that it's had over mm. so many human lifetimes already. And now See, it's got to this I realize it seems amazing really little point. strange mm. to me that you're like, oh, it's got to cut the metal. It's like, but where do they get the special metal from? It's like, no, man, it's just normal metal. I was like, I feel like NASA goes to a room full of spaceship parts That's that right. it uses to make spaceships. But it's, it's just like cutting it's, up. It's kept in Roswell, New Mexico. Oh, right. That's what it is. <laughs> it's just normal metal. It's just normal metal. That's freaking me out. The part that freaks me about this whole situation is we've taken a bit of the Earth and we've flung it off the Earth forever. It's not coming back. Like we've taken yeah. like, like so many, well, 100 kilograms or so of metal and gone, go away. And, and you know like, how we found up there? Something else we dug out of the ground. I know. And we just keep burning things. It's crazy. Anyway, sorry, Michelle. We just mm. <laughs> it, no. It's, it is pretty wonderful. That, you know, we crafted this little thing, and then we've been able to talk to it all this time, thanks to the Deep Space Network, the Big Dishes, one of which is down just outside Canberra Yay. at Bimbella. Yeah, Australia. And we've got these big seventy-meter dishes that allow us to listen to the tiny whispers coming from the Voyager spacecraft, and it, it is now a really long way out. Mm. Let me think. It's more, it's a bit more than 90 astronomical units, so a bit more than 90 times distance from Earth to the Sun. That's that's a fair distance. That's, that's a <laughs> hell of a distance. <laughs> yeah. The amazing part is, is, you know, when we talk about heliopause, first you think of the Sun as having this bubble around it that it blows, mm. and all stars blow these bubbles. Mm-hmm. It's the energy and light coming out from it, the charged particles and things are pushing out into what we call the interstellar medium, which is uh, more charged particles and all the ones from other stars and a little bit of dust and stuff. And so every star blows a bubble around itself. But ours is the only one that we can actually go out into and measure because these bubbles are huge and Mm. in many ways very hard to sense. And so Voyager, despite a lot of its instruments, including the one that was specifically designed to measure when it got to the boundary of this bubble, when it got to the wall of this bubble, not actually working anymore. Oh, really? So, yeah. Oh, the, no. The instrument that was supposed to specifically measure this doesn't go anymore. Oh. <laughs> they, yeah, they had to do some very nifty work with actually using the antenna of the spacecraft as a crude probe of just what the environment was oh, that it was goodness. flying through. Oh, it's kind that of... would have been a fun day when they got that working. <laughs> That's why it's been so tricky for them to tell, have we left the bubble of the sun's energy or not yet? Mm. Have we gone through what they call the heliopause? Because you're trying to grope at it with this measure that wasn't initially designed to be the way that you're actually going to do it. So So it's been a lot of ingenuity to come up with, can we actually make the spacecraft still do what we wanted it to do? (laughs) So is it kind of like a blind person? So a person who's become steadily blind over the last couple of decades, just tapping their way down the street and going, well, I... 
I think I'm in suburbia now. I think I've left the inner city. It sounds different. Like the concrete sounds different on my cane. It's that, that level, isn't it, of, of, of not the wrong instruments to the wrong task, trying to be repurposed. Yeah, it's quite, it is quite close to that. They've got very good at doing it, <laughs> at, figuring, at figuring everything out. But yeah, it's, it is ingenious how they've managed to come up with tests for this. Yeah. And so Ed Stone at this conference was showing us this plot of the plasma density that they were going through over time. And I've never seen a time series plot presented in such a fun way. Just each little point ticking out as he was talking about it. And you see this drop, and then the density goes back up again. And they go, okay, that was a false alarm. (laughs) (laughs) And then you get this enormous next huge one, and it just drops all the way to the floor of this Mm. plot. And it doesn't come back up. And they keep flying, and they keep flying. Was that a false alarm? And no, it doesn't come back up. They've actually finally been able to say, all right, yes, we're there. We're outside the bubble of the heliopause. That's cool. That's very cool. Now, would you describe that as having left the solar system? That's really tricky because you've got the bubble of the sun's effect and you can kind of see how this works. He showed a really great video, which is a really good way to think about it. If you turn the tap on and you've got a tap that drops a jet of water down into your sink and you've got a reasonably flat sink bottom Mm. and you see how you get that splay of the jet and then the water spreads out. Mm. That's the kind of effect that you get with the heliopause. You get this little turbulent edge around the edge you don't quite yeah, know, yeah. you know, it's not a hard boundary. You've got this kind of fuzz to it. it keeps moving in and out. Yeah, yeah, that's why they were so unsure if Voyager had gone through it or not. Mm. So this is, you know, one boundary of the sun's effect. But the boundary of the sun's effect on things is quite different to the gravitational binding that the sun has to all the things that go around it. Mm-hmm. So comets, asteroids, trans-Neptunian objects like what I like to study, mm. you know, these little distant icy worlds, they go far further out than Voyager is at the moment. Oh. Poor Voyager will run out of energy to power any of its transmitters or any of its instruments in about 20, 25 years. Right. And that will be well before it goes anywhere near the Oort cloud. Oh, okay. cloud of all the comets. It's, you know, that's 50,000 astronomical units oh, out. So mm. It's that, got an awful way to go. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, and that cloud is there because of our sun being there. It's around our sun, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Mm. So when you were hearing about the uh, Voyager 1 getting through the heliopause and all the laymen in the media going, it's escaped the solar system, were you sitting there going, yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> you got another 200 million years. That's right. You got, a, you got a while to go there, that one. Oh. It's got a while to go. Mm. I mean, yeah, but it, it's, it raises these kinds of inquest, interesting questions about what do you think of when you say, do you just mean the object's bound to it? Do you mean when its influence changes? Sorry, when the sun's influence changes? It's kind of fun. And it raises the question of, okay, you've got these trans-Neptunian objects that are going in and out through that heliopause on their orbits mm. all mm. the time. How does that change their surfaces? Yeah, yeah. And to me, that was kind of, you know, that's a fun question to think about of what kind of properties change as a result of that in and out all the time. If it's 50,000 astronomical units out to the Oort cloud, then we're kind of, you're talking about monstrous distances. That's a fair percentage of the way to, uh, to well, maybe, well, it's a percentage of the way to, to like Alpha Centauri, the next star over. So that would have to be... It is. I'm, I'm assuming if you're going to start declaring that as the outside of the solar system, solar systems are almost butting up against each other. Yeah, and there are a lot of theories about how close stars have to be before they actually start swapping comets. Ugh. Oh, so, wow. So, we could, maybe, so maybe we're, mm. we're sharing things with Alpha Centauri. That'd be awesome. Oh, probably, probably not Alpha Centauri's comets at the moment, but yeah, in the past we could definitely have shared comets with other stars. As once, okay, as they move past us, we move past them. Okay. Hmm. And when you think about it, gravity doesn't stop, it just drops off by the square law. Hmm. So all stars are affected by the sun's gravity. <sighs> so all of the stars uh... <laughs> in the sky are in our solar system. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's pushing it too far. <laughs> we found the outer edge of, of what we're going to believe on this one. <laughs> Phew. At least we found the outer edge of something. That's, you've got to go with that one. <laughs> it's, it is... The the galaxy t- start taking over definitely by that point. Aha. Uh-huh. There we go. So, so is Voyager then in interstellar space or no? 
Yes. <laughs> it's in interstellar space, but... <laughs> but... But it's still within the solar system. But it's still in the solar system. <laughs> okay, now it's just... Yeah. Uh, I, I think what's happened here is people have defined things a bit loosely, and now we're all reaping the, the whirlwind on that one. Ah, it makes it very difficult. It's not fair hey. at all. Well, astronomers, I, if it's accurate to within an order of magnitude, everything's just fine. <laughs> yeah. Actually, to go on a complete tangent and diversion here, uh, I would surmise that it is not unreasonable for me to say that you have an interest in space. <laughs> like outer space. Would this be true? That's, yep, pretty yep, true. Yep, and I think that Greg would, right. yes, is I do. very much on board. Very much. Have you gone out to watch Gravity... With George Clooney oh, and Sandra Bullock. Oh, the movie Bullock. Gravity. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I did go and watch it the other week, actually. Ah, you did? Mm. I love, so I I love can, the great girls. Oh, the movie Gravity. Was... No, she went outside and she watched things fall to the ground. <laughs> Fine. I was well, trying to tell... leaves falling off the trees here in British Columbia oh, at the moment. There you go. Yeah, I know. They're pretty true. So, so you got to watch it, but you would have come at it from a very... Like knowing heaps of stuff, did you did you enjoy the film, or, or, or were you sitting there picking holes in it, or how, how, how oh, that goodness experience? I, I had a great time. I mean, I'll pick holes in some stuff afterwards, but no. The the point of going to a movie is for me is definitely are the characters good, is the plot good? Okay, with gravity, that kind of didn't quite work out, but <laughs> the special effects are amazing, and you know, all credit to the filmmakers, they did a really spectacular job there. Hmm. It is yeah, it is as close as. I think I've ever seen to a movie that accurately comes close to recreating when you see, you know, IMAX type videos that were filmed in space, like mm. the IMAX film they made of Hubble Repair. They've done a really good job in trying to replicate that with special effects. Mm. And they've taken some dramatic license with the science for the <laughs> sake of having a plot. And, you know, that's fair enough too. And, and my only big issue with it, I mean, I, I liked it too, but my only big issue was once again, we've got a, it's, it's kind of like Towering Inferno, the, the old, like the 70s or 80s movie. You know, skyscrapers will kill you when they burst into flame gravity is sort of a movie about space it's don't go there it's just horrible and scary it's just i was impressed they managed to hit every single trope possible that's <laughs> how space can kill you yes, yes. And, and show it up close and personal yeah. um, and, and, and they mentioned what's, what's the most dangerous thing in space well, everything being clumped together. That's right. Very dangerous. <laughs> Push everything. Mm. Shotgun blasts of horror coming at you faster than bullets. Uh, like, oh. But anyway, no, it was, it was good. I think I, I say everyone should definitely go and see it as quickly as possible. Mm. And uh, now, four I mean, away. Yeah, I would say, yeah, you definitely want to see it in 3D, which I never thought I'd say for a movie uh, uh, mm. ever. But there you go. Yeah. It actually works in 3D and is not nausea-inducing. Yeah. Or at least it's nausea-inducing for all the right ways. That's a Sandra Bullock. I'm sorry. I think the thing that annoyed me the most, actually, is the impression that everything is kind of this two-dimensional surface that is orbit where you can go around like you're a tug ferrying across on a harbour. Yeah. You can go between space stations just by going on a single plane. There's no... Yeah, they didn't mm. feel like there were higher orbits or having to change orbits to do that, no, which that's... is you know, the way that everything is always set up at in low Earth orbit. You have multiple altitudes of orbits, and changing between them is actually quite tricky. And mm. I, I kind of felt that was an aspect of drama that it would have been nice for the drama to have that extra drama. <laughs> uh, but then again, know, I mean, I, I was learning about this. You have to simplify things for the sake of a plot. You always have to. I, I was really, I'm actually learning about this recently, so I won't go too much into it, but I got very excited talking about your transfer orbits. And if you actually accelerate in the direction of travel in, in an orbit, you actually end up going higher in the orbit, further away from yeah. the point. And so... And that and then if you slow oh. down, you go lower. So going exactly. faster, actually going going faster than or accelerating doesn't actually make you overtake something. It makes you go above it. So that's really hard to explain to people in a movie in an hour and a wow. half. <laughs> well, but it, it's a really, it's, you know, compared to what we experience here on Earth, it's a counterintuitive behavior. Mm, mm. But it was one of the triumphs of people like Buzz Aldrin who developed docking orbits and how to do it, how, mm. to, do, how to do docking in space, that they, you know, built ways of how you deal with this. And, you know, it is something amazing to go, okay, to get that in your head that you have to fire a rocket this way in order to move it in a direction that seems opposite to what you expect. Yes. And building that 
turn into a plot would be kind of cool. <laughs> I would like to see someone try and do it in a movie one day. Yeah, Gravity the, 2. The, the thing that really bugged me, and it's such a stupid little thing, but like there's this wonderful heartfelt moment where Sandra Bullock's so sad and overwhelmed by everything. Beautiful, emotional moment. And I'm mm. sitting there going... Well, that's not what teardrops do mm. in space. Don't it just drop up? Yeah. Why, why do they <laughs> know how teardrops operate? Yes, yes. That's, that's what Commander Hadfield explained that. But, but you just know, because movies take years to make. Yeah. So they, they would have had the drops driving away. And then Commander Hadfield would have gone, actually, they just kind of build up in your eyes. And you have to, like, wipe them away. And, and the movie guys are like, ah, oh, son of a monkey. We can't. We're too late. Ah, oh, we're not doing that. That's, just, that's a million dollars we're not spending. She could just cry with droplets. Maybe she was accelerating her head back really quickly. That's what has happened. She was jerking her head back at the same time. Maybe her tear ducts were just that strong. That's right. She was so full of emotion. She was just <laughs> squirting them out of her eyes. <laughs> anyway. so like, It's like Japanese anime where the, with the, kid, with the, with the kids are like, Wah! and they just rip, pours out rivulets. That's it. That's exactly what Except it was. in space, they sort of stream out. It's so <laughs> and if she ran out of power with the uh, fire extinguishers, then she could just look away from where she wanted to go and cry and just. No spoilers. Get it away. No spoilers. Sorry. Now, I'm really glad we've got Michelle on the podcast to give a movie review. Uh, <laughs> so, but we probably should get back to talking about what, what you're actually working on. That, that's, that's what we're. I mean, we've got a person who works yeah, in the field. What hey, actually I had, to watch a, I had to watch an IMAX movie on Friday, actually. So, just to be able to review it because we're going to end up doing some. Ask an astronomer sessions after this IMAX movie because it was all about the universe. It was called Hidden Universe, and I think it's pretty much brand new and IMAX release. So, watching movies is sometimes part of my job. I'm even more jealous. That's not fair at all. There you go. <laughs> I could say starting the day with an inspirational IMAX movie is a pretty good way to go. Yeah. <laughs> So you were saying that you're in Vancouver? Uh, Victoria, BC. So I'm on an island uh, which is confusingly named Vancouver Island, which actually has one of the largest concentrations of astronomers anywhere in Canada. That's where they heard. A herd of astronomers. (laughs) Uh, There have been a lot of names for what you call a herd of astronomers. They'd they'd be a cluster, wouldn't they? Oh, a cluster. That's quite a good one. An open cluster of astronomers. (laughs) (laughs) They do tend to diffuse them out, yeah. But yeah, we've got probably close on 150 astronomers here, you know, one stripe or another, engineering or instrumentation or research or teaching. So is Vancouver Island low on light pollution or why are they drawn there? Well, the city's called Victoria. It's about 300,000 in the city itself and about 500,000 in the greater metropolitan area. And there's a university, University of Victoria. Um, So there's a a Department of Physics and Astronomy there, and a fair few of us are based there. And there's also the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, which is one of the oldest astronomical institutes in Canada. And they have quite a few telescopes, because, yes, at the time when they were built, um, Victoria was very low on light pollution. It was a lot smaller. And the weather here is actually remarkably good as Canada goes. It doesn't snow a lot of the time. You get maybe one or two snow days a year. It's pretty clear. This astronomical Astronomical Institute, the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, that built up over time. And so now you have a facility that's now run called the National Research Council's Hertzberg Institute, and and that has well over 100 people there. Um, And they do things like they built a whole bunch of the receivers um, for the new microwave um, telescope that's down in the Atacama Desert in Chile, the one called ALMA, that's just coming online soon. And you should expect to see some really spectacular science results coming out shortly. It's just pretty much undergoing commissioning and first science. Oh, cool. First light, as it were. First light. Well, it's a little past first light, but first light... The actual first science often takes a wee while. So what are, you, what are you actually working on at the moment? What, what can you thrill us from the world of your research? Well, the question I'm trying to answer is, at the moment with the state of outer solar system science, there's a bunch of objects out there. Pluto is one of them. You know, Eris, Haumea, Makimaki, Kwawa, Sedna. We know there's a handful of large worlds. Mm. We know there's many tens of thousands of smaller worlds. And we're beginning to get some grasp that there's some structure in where they uh, live in the outer solar system. So you've got everything out there is sculptured pretty much by Neptune. So mm-hmm. Neptune is the outermost big planet. Its gravity guides where they can sit. Mm-hmm. If they sit in what we call a resonance with Neptune, so they go around the sun once, Neptune goes around the sun a certain multiple of times because it's going around faster because it's closer. Mm-hmm. If it's in a resonance like that, that creates 
zones in space where the orbit of one of these little objects will be unstable. If it's in a resonance with Neptune, it might be safe, mm. probably be safe, but you end up with these zones of stability. Right, yes. So basically the way the gravity interacts between the two objects and the mm-hmm. sun or just Neptune and the object? At this point, it's just Neptune and the object. The sun is a very long way away. Mm. If you bring it into the case of gravitational stability like our Earth, our moon and the sun, Mm. then, yeah, the sun is playing a big role there. If you need to put a spacecraft in orbit around the Earth-moon-sun combo, then you you have to take it into account. But out at Neptune, it's not such a big deal. Sure. Okay. So there's certain points, these islands. I'm trying to think. These are um, are equivalent to... Around Earth, you have the Lagrangian points. So, the, 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 yeah. is that, is that sort of uh, the right idea? There's, there's some similarity to that, yeah, but it's a, it's a really interesting structured region. So, mm. you can think of it in terms of belts of stability, but there's also okay. islands before and behind Neptune, regions, what they call in Jupiter, they call them the Trojans, mm-hmm. named after characters from the Iliad. So, you've got all these regions, this almost fractal structure in some ways, as you go oh, wow. further and further and further out from Neptune, where you have patterns. Patches of stability, patches of instability, and objects end up sitting in part of it, not in part of it. But when you look at this on the sky, mm. now you have a really fun problem. You, we know that there's, to some level, that there's structure, but we don't know a whole lot about the details. Yeah. And the fun part is, when you form the solar system, so cast your mind back four and a half billion years ago. <laughs> and uh, I remember it well. <laughs> and I you was end just up a boy. <laughs> and you end up with so many millions of these little ice worlds that are just congealed out of the planetary disk mm. of gas and dust. And you have all these little worlds, the gas and dust disperses, you're left with the giant planets. And after a couple of tens of millions of years, maybe as much as 500 million years, you end up with situations where the giant planets come into a resonance with each other. As they they kind of kick some of these little ones out of the way, wow. <laughs> move as a result themselves. And you end up with... Jupiter and Saturn had a resonance, and that pretty much disrupts the whole thing. Mm. Uranus and Neptune, one one or the other, it depends whose model you follow, um, which one it is, basically acts like a snowplow into these little icy worlds in the outer solar system (laughs) and ends up just scattering a whole bunch of them outwards and moving them. So you, you trap some of them in these resonances, and as the icy giant planet moves outwards, it just holds them in the resonances and just moves them out in front. Um, right. Oh, well, kind of. hang, hang on. This is this is really interesting because I've always heard that one reason that Earth is so safe from meteor impact is that Jupiter tends to collect most of this stuff and and sort of block them from hitting the Earth. But they're not. It's not just the planet being in the way of the of the meteorites. It it actually creates a, a belt of gravitational influence that kind of traps and moves debris out? Is that what you're saying? It's tricky because you're thinking, of, yeah, it, yes, in some respects, but uh, that's a slightly different problem. That's in the current solar system, which is, for one, a lot emptier, mm. and for two, the giant planets aren't moving anymore. So the giant planets are moving in this early time of the solar system because you have so many more worlds, little tiny worlds around for them to scatter. Ah, we don't right. have to. That the solar system as we have it now is pretty much static. But in this early time, you're doing what they actually call it the architecture of the solar system. So where you have the giant planets is sets the architecture. And you're actually changing the architecture. It is pretty much, if you think of it as the architecture of a cathedral, as though you're taking out some support pillars and swapping them around to, ch- did, did, to change the design of the building. Did yeah. planets swap places? Oh, yeah. And, Get and out! This, <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and we didn't know this, you know, more than a decade ago. The first stirrings of understanding this were about 1990. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, since we discovered these little worlds in the outer solar system, that all of the structure, all of these signatures of this migration have started being found. We get to the present day, and we've got a bunch of competing models of how you get this migration to happen, the details of the migration that happens, how you change the architecture. Did we even and start with an extra ice giant. Did we used to have oh, yeah. an extra Neptune in our solar system and had to get rid of it to get the architecture the way we see it today? Wow. We don't know yet. <laughs> but 
what we have to use to find that out is where the little icy worlds, you know, Pluto and Eris and all the others, where they sit in the current day solar system. There's two things you can do. You can get a very big telescope and you can get a lot of time on that telescope mm. and then you can search for icy worlds. That's going to be hard, have... surely. That's, I mean, that's, there's not a lot of light out there. <laughs> it's, these things are many millions of times fainter than your, your eye can see. <laughs> Hooray! <laughs> wow, okay. Patch of the sky. Any given patch of the sky, there's hundreds of them in it. But oh. you have to look to such faint magnitudes to be able to see them. Goodness me. Okay. So, mm-hmm. so they're pretty much impossible to find. Well, not impossible, obviously not, no, not impossible to find because you're finding them. You need a big telescope. And the second thing you need is you need to know where you looked and what, if you found something in it. And also record if you looked somewhere and you didn't. So this bit, you have to build a picture in your head that's quite tricky. So here we are on Earth. Mm-hmm. We're going round and round the sun. If you look out in the night sky, so you know, say you look straight above your head, standing on the planet in the night sky, mm-hmm. you're looking into a particular piece of the solar system. You're looking out you know, past Mars, past Saturn, past Neptune, into a particular piece of the outer solar system. Mm-hmm. But the planet is turning. The planet is going around the sun. It's going around the sun a lot faster than anything out there is. So depending you know, what time of year it is when you look out, you're sampling a different part of the outer solar system. Uh. And it also depends which hemisphere you're in when you look out into the night sky. And are you judging what part you're looking at by the stars at the, behind it? So you're going, I'm yeah, looking so between Alpha Centauri and Betelgeuse, dead <laughs> centre there, but of course that's a very, very long way away, and then you're trying... In the spring, it's diff- you're looking at a completely different part of the solar system. Mm. To- oh my exactly. God. That's parallax. Yep. Problems with parallax yeah. right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What you're actually doing is every time you take an image, you're sampling a different part of the outer solar system. <laughs> so you're, you're biasing. You're biasing what you do. You end up going, huh, all right, I looked at that part of the sky. I think I found some objects, but... Then you have to say, all right, how did I do that in such a way that you can say... All right, because I looked at this part, I made a sample, mm. and I sampled in such a way that then I can go, huh, this is what it means for the whole solar system Right. if I plot everything out. So it gets kind of tricky. <laughs> and that's, a, that's, that's a, to... a lot of space and a lot of objects. Oh, yeah. So we put together a big team. This is uh, one of the largest teams of people who study the outer solar system that's ever been made. At the moment, it's 41 people, and we have people involved at universities and research institutes from Taiwan across through Canada, USA, France, various other European countries, Ukraine. You can imagine this makes telecons quite fun for getting the time zones (laughs) sorted out. And we asked the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, which has a particular sort of instrument on it, which is a camera that can look at a large patch of the sky. Hmm. And that telescope has a pretty big aperture. The bucket it has for for gathering light, its mirror, its light bucket, is four metres across. Mm -hmm. So that means it can gather a lot of light and it can look to a depth in the sky, to a, um, a size of little icy object. That's, you know, well under 100 kilometres in diameter, getting down to pushing towards 50 kilometres if we're lucky. And, and honestly, that sounds really big, but it's so far away. It's, it's <laughs> yeah. stupidly far away. That's, it's, that's uh, madness. It's amazingly faint. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So if you pointed that guy at, uh, say, Vancouver, from where <laughs> you were, like you'd be able to see like people's faces and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the telescope itself is in Hawaii, but yeah, but if I could tilt it down and point it at something on, I could do, let's see, it covers a square degree of the sky. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I can fit the full moon into it a couple times over. Wow. It, 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 you, wow. You'd be able to see the footprints on the moon. No, no. You, actually... could, you, you could point it at the <laughs> moon problems. and yes, see, where they, right, yes. see where they filmed faking the moon landing. <laughs> Dan, 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 Dan. So what we're trying to do with the, um, with the survey, so CFHT, the Canada-France-Hawaii telescope, the committee who allocates time went, okay, you guys have a really good case. We've got this really tricky problem. We're trying to understand how the formation of the solar system happened, what the history of it was. 
And to do that, you need to discover all these little icy worlds so that we can pick out the structure of the outer solar system really well. And with that, we can determine which model is accurate of, you know, what, what was our history? This is what we're trying to figure out. They gave us a huge amount of time. It's 560 hours of time, which is... In practice, what this means is that telescope on Mauna Kea is taking observations for us two weeks out of every month for the next four years. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, yeah. That's... We started in February of this year, and yeah, we'll go for the next three years after this. Goodness me. And, and that will be enough for you to start getting some decent data and, and what you actually need? I mean, it seems like a... Yeah, so, so we try and do it in kind of pairs of years. So we'll, so this year we discover objects. Mm-hmm. Next year we follow them up and find exactly what their orbit was such that we can say, hey, has it, this object is primordial. Its orbit hasn't changed since it formed early in the solar system's life. This object... It had a much more eventful history. It scattered off Neptune gravitationally at some point in the past, and now it's been kicked into this really highly tilted, really elongated orbit that takes it you know, out to maybe 2,000 AU or more, wow. 2,000 astronomical units or more, and then it zips close and inside the orbit of Uranus. So. Mm, mm. This sounds and we just so have complex, and it almost sounds like you're trying to figure out a play-by-play from a snooker match based on the <laughs> remaining balls on the table after the game has been won. <laughs> That's absolutely what we're trying to do. This is the SIA solar system, and all we've got is the crime scene. That's- <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that you call it the crime scene. <laughs> So is there? I mean, I was reading that like they're trying to work out if if there if there is actually any larger planets out there as well, like planet planet sized things, much further out. And was that something that that would this discover that sort of thing, or or that would would potentially we can. Mm. So yeah, so we're looking at a several hundred square degrees of sky, Mm. and we're going faint enough that uh, the tricky part is you can't generalize to the whole sky. It's kind of tricky. We can put limits and say, all right, there is no planet in what we found of the sort you're saying. You're talking about something like the size of Mars, say, Mm. and put it out a thousand times further than the Earth is from the sun. Yes. We'd pick that up super easily. Oh, okay, right, okay. (laughs) Or not, sorry, not necessarily Mars at a thousand a year exactly. We can definitely say for a certain size of planet at a certain distance whether we detect it. Sure. If there's anything the size of Jupiter, you see that. Yeah, we, we already know to a large degree with surveys that have been done before this one that there isn't anything like that out there. Nothing of that. The si- size. Yeah. Okay. The size of Planet X has to keep shrinking and it has to keep hiding <laughs> in more and more crowded pieces of sky like the Milky Way. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Planet X is currently trying to hide very, very well and is having to find some really obscure corners of the sky. Well, I mean, let's, let's face it. If you've got you guys looking at the crime scene. It's got the smoking gun. I think it's, it's like, no, 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 no. I have an alibi. I wasn't here. I was around Alpha Centauri at the time. You can't prove anything. Where in the solar system is Carmen Sandiego? That's a- is what the game we're playing here. <laughs> That's pretty much. Okay, so that was that was a, bit of a tangent there. So you're not worried that the really the big 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 things will be quite easily found with this sort of stuff. But you're really looking for the really really small things because, as you said, yeah. the changes in their orbit will show you what happened in the past. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, the past changes in their orbit. We only get to see the snapshot of them now. I mean, mm. the standard orbit for something in the Kuiper Belt, which is that kind of forty to forty-eight astronomical unit distance out past Neptune, mm. where a lot of these objects live. That's uh, 300 years to go around the sun or so. Oh, wow. We discover a whole bunch of these. So we're aiming to discover a 1,000 or so objects. At the moment, there's about 1,600 known. So we're pretty much going to double the number of <laughs> known objects in the outer solar system. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and all of the ones we discover, we're observing in such a way that we'll be able to recover them later. So one of these that takes 300 years to go around, I have a batch of discoveries that we made in February. Mm. February till, you know, late October, that's <laughs> not a very large number of months. You know, it's 150-odd days of... Mm. It's orbit that we've known about it for and tracked it for. And from that tiny little fraction, that sliver of its whole year to go around the sun, it's 300 of our year's year. 
we have to figure out what its orbit was and from that figure out what its history was, how it formed and how it got to be on the orbit we now see it today. So you're basically so, trying to figure out the circle that it's trying to prescribe by looking at the straight line it appears to be taking through the solar system. Yep. <laughs> Pushing. And the amazing part is we could do it really, really well. That's yeah, many chillicas. <laughs> that is pretty crazy. Yeah. Mm. I have a trouble like just doing ellipses with like Kepler kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's and the that, whole thing. I they're do, oh. they're anyway. doing it. You're, you're pretty much doing it from the centre of the circle. Like you're not even outside the circle looking at it. Going, like all you have is a tiny white dot and you're measuring how the variation in luminescence of the dot while the thing you're measuring from is spinning around in the centre. <laughs> this is why I say to figure out from what we discover what the actual um, solar system as a whole looks like, you have to do some really careful debiasing. Mm-hmm. So we actually build entire simulators of our survey that we then say, hey, these are our discoveries. Take your model of how the solar system's history went through, how, it, how the solar system evolved, and say what your picture of how the solar system evolved, what that ends up making in the outer solar system. Compare that against our discoveries based on our very well-characterised survey, and with that, does your model work? Does your model match <laughs> the reality we measured? So that's what we provide to all the other planetary scientists as a result of this survey, as a way to test, you know, what's your history? Does it actually work? There you go. What are you actually hoping to prove here? Or is it just, you, you, do you have a hypothesis of what you think happened? Or is it just, we're going to see what's out there and we're going to backtrack from there? At the moment, um, the most popular theory amongst a lot of planetary scientists is one where you have the migration of Neptune outwards, the snowplow plow out through the outer solar system. Mm. It happens quite quickly. It's quite abrupt. It's slow compared to what we're used to in our day-to-day life here on Earth. Mm. But compared to you know, how long it takes in a rock to form or something like that, <laughs> it's pretty quick. Fair <laughs> so, enough. So, you know, it's... So it's you're, yeah, not, you're not like leaping out of the way of a car. to a million or so years that this kind of time scale happens on to yeah. change the architecture of the solar system. It's really, really fast. Mm. Okay. And um, your hypothesis is Neptune has moved out and pushed everything mm. out in front of it and scattered everything as far as far and wide. Yep. Okay. So you test this model. You see, does this happen gradually? Do you move it over tens of maybe hundreds of millions of years or do you do it really fast mm. in the sense of tens of thousands of years? Mm. Okay. Makes sense. So you were saying earlier on about there might have been another ice giant out there at one point that got kicked out. Is that, mm-hmm. is that something that could be shown with this situation? Like you go, it, yes, it was, it was, we think there was something sitting here at this point, but it got kicked out by, by all this movement. Or is that just something we mm-hmm. have to go, uh, we, there might or there might not be? So the way you run these kinds of tests, if you're at home and you want to you know, play with a model of the solar system, you can do this. this the software is free to download. Ooh, what's, um, it, what's it called? No, none of this is commercial. The, probably the easiest one is the software called Mercury. I can send you folks the links later. Um, What it is, is you take a planet, and a planet will have a mass. So that mass means it has some gravity. And you know the mass of the sun, so you set it going in orbit around the sun. Mm -hmm. Then you add more planets. And you give those, each of those a mass. And for Jupiter and Saturn, this is kind of nice because we know the mass of those. We sent spacecraft by them. We know them very, very precisely. And you pick other um, so, Uranus, Neptune. We know the masses there. of those. We, 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 just yep. jumped, we just jumped over that fact. But it's pretty it, impressive that the human race has worked out the mass of the largest planets in the solar system by sending a spacecraft past it. I just think that <laughs> that, that in itself is just quite mind-blowing. Anyway, moving on now. That's fine. Just a minor <laughs> well, miracle, a minor technological miracle we're just going to gloss over. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> that's, what, that's all Jupiter is, is mass. Come on. Little thing is tricky. Well, it depends on the, the level of precision you care about. If you care about sending a spacecraft past it to, for the spacecraft to go to another place, then you care about the mass very, very <laughs> <laughs> Yes, especially if you're on that spacecraft, Dan. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so this is so you make a toy model of the solar system and into it you then add maybe, oh, let's say, add 10,000 little tiny icy worlds. So these are way less massive than the planets. But you set all of those spinning in orbit around the sun as well at some distance. And you have some algorithms and this stuff. This is actually reasonably straightforward math and most of it is already coded for you. And you hit the run button and say, all right, calculate the positions of everything in the solar system at 
every, let's say, every thousand years Hmm. go and how every single object, its gravity pulls on every other object. (laughs) And this is why we have big computers and fast computers that can do all of these computations for us. Yes. <laughs> and so the little toy solar system just goes... <laughs> you could make one hell of a game of billiards with that software. Like, imagine playing pool, but you're playing pool with the solar system planets, and when you shoot the white ball, it actually swings around the heavier balls. <laughs> <laughs> Get on to that, Dan. That's a smarter than a better game of gravity snooker. Gravity snooker. Excellent. So, so this model can actually, if it's accurate enough, should be able to show things being flung out and flung all over the place. Exactly. So you run this for a billion, two, three, four billion years, <laughs> finding out where the positions of everything are every thousand years or so. And it's, that's the run of the history of the solar system. Mm. And you can try tweaking stuff. And so the, thing, the thing you can't do, that you might go, okay, why, do, why don't you run it in reverse? Why don't you take the solar system we have now and run it backwards? Mm, mm. And the problem is chaos. Always. These, the solar system is an inherently chaotic system, and even if you have the same initial conditions, you won't get the same output every single time. Right, yes. So, so what you do is you go statistics to the rescue, and you don't just run your solar system with, its, you know, with this toy model of it. You don't want to run it once. You run it a thousand times mm. or a few hundred times. And you say, what's the most probable outcome we get with that initial condition? And hopefully and it looks pa- like what we get today. And you see, does it match what, what, what set of initial conditions most frequently gives you a result that matches what we see today? Okay. So, yeah, it's, it is in many ways a type of astronomy we didn't have before we had very powerful computers that you could set these models running. We're pretty much at time. I, I think so, yeah. That's so. Right. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to talk about, Michelle? Um, I'd say there's a really awesome article in the National Geographic of about two, three months ago that describes uh, this idea of you know, how you change the architecture of the solar system and what we know about it now. And I'd say that if you're interested in this kind of thing, that's a really awesome article to go and read. All right, well, we'll get links to all these things and put them in the show notes. Certainly will. So thank you very much to Michelle Bannister for coming on once again to the podcast to, to enlighten us about the cold, tiny objects that are out there and how they're pretty much the, the, the fingerprint, the smoking gun, the, the, the evidence uh, of what happened in the past. It's not just out there a long time ago. It, it really points at exactly what was happening to us, well, not to us, but to the planet we lived on a long time ago. I think that's, once again, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> it's an exciting world. It We're is. only going to find out more about it. Well, there you go. That's it. That's Michelle Bannister. Uh, you were looking forward to it. Now it's all done. You wanted to rush <laughs> towards the interview. Now it's, it's like Christmas. It's like Boxing Day morning, isn't that's right. it? That's right. Uh, without Doctor Who to look forward to. Yeah. yeah. That's right. In Australia, that's when we seem to have it. Not Anyway, but thank you to Michelle for coming on again. Friend of the show, Michelle Bannister. Did you watch Doctor Who? Yeah, of course I watched Doctor Who. It's not very sciencey these days. Well, no, it hasn't been sciencey for years. I wish it was. I wish they were teaching really hard. I wish he was just doing experiments for an hour. <laughs> no, you don't. No, no one wants that. No, it's like going, I wish the sets were more rickety. So you wouldn't watch 50 minutes of Matt Smith doing scientific experiments? Not, no, actually, I wouldn't. Matt, I mean, he's a great actor, but it doesn't mean he's brilliant in science or brilliant to watch teaching science. He's David his Attenborough inter- to his, be the His doctor. interviews are actually quite boring. When I watch Matt Smith's interviews, I'm like, oh. He's always like, oh, just Steve, give him a script. Stephen Moffat's brilliant. He's brilliant. Everyone's brilliant. He's such a nice guy. Everyone's brilliant. And you're like, oh. Yeah, you give him a script and some science experiments to run. I suppose so. If the doctor did it, I didn't. I didn't what watch... about if David, Co- Professor David Cox, was the doctor? Well, did you see the one where, where David, uh, no, uh, Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Professor Who's David Cox. I don't know. I'm not idea, man. That's... I think he used to teach me tennis. <laughs> Professor Brian Cox. Also, he. I used to travel with him in a, in a blue <laughs> phone box. Brian Cox the did the, the Science of Doctor Who. Did you see that? I didn't. That's. It's called the Science of Doctor Who, where he did a a lecture about time travel, and and basically he, it was just the the framework to get people to come in to watch him talk about science. But what annoyed me about it was suckers. Well, no, well, I thought it'd be like random people watching a lecture. Now they're all famous people. Like he sent invites to all the sexy TV and movie people in England. They all came and sat round in the old style seatings. You know, the old lecture theaters. Like like there's a, a cadaver being yeah, cut up in the that's middle. Exactly right. And he and it was cool. But I was like, oh, where are the normal people? Well, I'm we're watching from TV. You, you 
you've got Patrick Stewart sitting there and you've got everyone, you know, you've got Sue Perkins watching. Everyone's kind of watching, but it's kind of... But what, why I'm mentioning is when he's, when he's doing it, the first bit he does is he's walking down, he's got a script in hand, he's like, oh, I've got a script in hand, script in hand, and he's running late, and he's like, oh, I've got to get to the theatre, and he runs in, and he goes, oh, makeup, and he turns around, and there's the TARDIS sitting in front of the door, hmm. and it's got Brian Cox makeup written on it, and he runs inside, going, oh, I have no time, and it's, and it's, it's Matt Smith, it's the 11th Doctor going, Brian, come in, and, he, and he, they have this five-minute talk, and he's like, I, I, so I'm sorry, I, I've got, I can't stay, I've got this lecture, I know, and it's brilliant, I haven't done it yet, Time travel, keep up, you know, and, and, and I have a talk about, and it's a beautiful moment where he like puts his fingers like, like, look, what you're saying is impossible, doctor. And he put, he runs over and he puts his finger right on Brian Cox's lips like, shh. Now you have to put the, uh, the pound and the swear jar. It's like impossible jar written there. <laughs> it's really cute. Once again, that was Matt Smith as the doctor and doing an amazing thing. Teaching science. Well, and did you enjoy in, it? Introducing Brian. Fine. He, he did it straight to that. That's what I want. <laughs> I, I didn't know it existed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I'm I'm going to come and watch it right now. <laughs> oh, this is being recorded. You have. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've been saying that for three and a half years now. <laughs> you have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. And Greg, who's quite oblivious at smartenough.org. Didn't you realise we hadn't finished? No, I thing? just thought, I'm so used to you and I just chatting on the, I don't know, we, just, we have a habit of chatting into microphones. I just thought we were chatting <laughs> to microphones again. Uh, Sorry, listeners, I hope you enjoyed it. <laughs> go to Skype if you want to hear more of us. SE2KB. Skype? Skype? No, don't get a Skype. <laughs> we're not there. What's it called? Twitter. Twitter. Go That's to a- Twitter. <laughs> SE2KB. And Facebook at SE2KB as um, well. We, we also have our own Twitter accounts. We sure do. Oh, yes. You're the WAH. You can be look for at T-H-E-W-A-H, at the WAH. And I'm D-N-A Beast. B-E-A-S-T. That's right. And you can talk to us specifically. We follow the the main one as well. Yeah, we're both there. We are hands-on on the the ground. We are. Not so much with the Facebook, Facebook slash SE2KB, where I know everything that's going on there. (laughs) Greg doesn't have a clue. I'm not on Facebook, so, uh, yeah. And we're not on Instagram. That seems to be, everyone seems to be on Instagram now. It's like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I see it everywhere. We're not that either. I'm on Snapchat. Oh, there you go. If you'd like to see the host's penises (laughs) for Seconds. No! No, that's not what we're doing. What? Is this no. what Snapchat is? I, I, I'm, yeah, it's sexting. I'm pretty sure it's a sexting tool. I don't I don't want to be part of that. I don't want I don't want to dilute the brand. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take pictures of different penises from all around the world. Like different animals. Yeah, well, like yeah, an armadillo. So. Here's an armadillo's penis. Why yep. not vaginas as well, Dan? What are you against the vagina? My penis. Bow chicka bow. Look, I, I'm unamused, but also horrified. Penises are funnier right. than vaginas. Right. And also, I'm sorry if that's sexist. It's also threatening. Are penises threatening? <sighs> no, it's too comical looking. I think, I think the erect penis is threatening. It's coming at you. Uh, rawr, rawr, erect penis. Even then, it's kind of threatening in the same way that, say, a, um, a Labrador with one of them plastic bucket heads who's really angry. <laughs> <laughs> the bucket. We're head. still recording this. Oh, yeah, sorry. <laughs>
Yes. Yeah. Not a lot of people into temperate. Most people do like extremes. <laughs> I think I'm being mocked. I, I think you are. <laughs>